You are listening to an Elam Christian Center podcast. We hope that you are inspired, encouraged, and empowered by the message you are about to hear. Fantastic. Good morning, everyone. So good to be here. As Adrian said, my name's Gareth. I'm here with my beautiful wife, Charlotte, and it is a joy. We've been here just a little over, I suppose, four months now, and we have had just the absolute pleasure and privilege of being able to go around all the different campuses just to get to see Elam Christian Center in so many different expressions. And with that, you, you learn a lot, not only about the communities and the cultures you step into, but you learn a lot about yourself. And I think I have learned loads, but one thing that sticks out is that I, I feel all the stereotypes that Kiwis have of Irish people, if I'm being honest. I feel that I am someone who loves potatoes, I play the bagpipes, and I support the greatest rugby team in the world. But there is one stereotype that I've been really trying to avoid that people have about Irish people. And I said, Irish people aren't the smartest. And I wasn't even really aware of it until I came here, but apparently people think Irish aren't the smartest bunch. And it's a wee bit like the joke I heard of the Irish man who went to the library. He walks into the library and he goes up to the library and he says, I'll have a fish and chip, please. The librarian looks around and says, sir, this is clearly a library. And he goes, okay, sorry, can I have a fish and chip, please? <laughs> Thankfully, I haven't really fell into that trap here, and that maybe says more about you guys than me, because the New Zealand people are the least judgmental people I know. And I love that, because I'm a big believer that you should never judge a book by its cover. And I learned this lesson early on in life. I was one of them people that wasn't the smartest at school. I really struggled to pay attention in the classroom, and I, and I struggled to even read. Uh, and, in fact, the teacher phoned home one day and asked my mom to really invest in me and start to, not that she wasn't at all, I'm glad this isn't being live streamed, this service. <laughs> she was, but when it comes to reading, trying to get me to start reading again, get, get me to start learning and speaking in class. So she thought, okay, I know where to bring him. I'll bring him to the library. That's where all the stupid people go in Ireland's the library. So I went to the library, and she brought me there, and she... She said, just go and pick any book. Any book at all, we'll start slow with this. So even though I was quite young, I was still tuned in. I, I mightn't have been able to read that well, but my, my brain was ticking, and I thought, you know what, I'll go and try and find the, the book with the least number of pages, you know, the, the fewest words or, or lots of lovely pictures. So I was scrolling through the library and finding a few different books, and I, I find one, and I brought it up to my mom. And she goes, really? This book? Are you sure about this book? And I said, mom, please. Well, as children say, mum, please, in a quiet, awkward space like a library, I insisted and persisted, and she gave in, and she, she, made her, she made me get it, and I brought it home, and that was all well and good until I got home and realized that I couldn't read it because it was in Spanish. <laughs> you see, you should never judge a book by its cover, and thankfully, the Kiwi people don't, and you haven't been doing that to me, but you know what the truth is? We often do that when it comes to the Bible. We live in a society and a generation that write off the Word of God without even reading it at times. We take one glance and we think, you know what, that's not for me. That is a historical book. It's a religious book. It's irrelevant. And I thought that, and I believed that for a long time until I actually opened it and realized that this just wasn't any old book. It wasn't even a book. It was a library of 66 books. Old and New Testament, and it wasn't just the Word of man, it was the Word of God, and it changed my life. But if there was one book 
in the whole library of Scripture where I had to say you should never judge a book by its cover, ironically, it would have to be the book of Judges. Now, there's people in the room going, there you go, typical. I came in here, maybe a friend invited me or family member, and I thought I was going to come here and hear an uplifting message, but you've, you're preaching this morning out of the book of Judges. And that book, out of all the books, sums up Christianity. You judge people. You see how they dress, you see how they act, you see how they live, and you judge people. But the truth is, you should never judge a book by its cover. Because the book of Judges doesn't sum up human, or Christianity, it sums up humanity. It talks about the, the sinfulness of man and our need for a Savior. You see, we live in a generation and in a world where, where sin abounds, but we don't want to judge. You know, don't judge me, only God can judge me, people say. But really, we don't want God to judge us either. We live in that generation. But what's really remarkable about the book of Judges is they wanted a judge. What? Even with all their flaws and all their failures, they wanted a judge. Why? Because a judge in the Bible, in the Scriptures, is different to how we know what a judge is today in society. You see, in society, when we think of a judge, we think of someone who sits in a courtroom and they convict criminals for their crimes. They sentence people. But when we look in the Scriptures, that wasn't really the role of a judge. A judge was more of a political leader, like a warrior-style leader, who didn't come to sentence people but to set them free. They didn't come to condemn people but to deliver them. Their people, they would fight for them, not just with their lips, but with their lives. That was the judge you'd want. And that's exactly where we are this morning in our passage. We're going to pick up in Judges chapter 3, verses 12 to 20. If you have a Bible, you can turn there with me. But the story so far of the children of Israel has always been one of sin and slavery and being set free. They were slaves in Egypt until Moses came and led the people out. Many of you know the story where they were wandered in the wilderness for 40 years until his assistant Joshua stood up and steered the people into the promised land of Canaan, where after defeating many surrounding nations, they were able to settle down. But the book of Judges opens up by telling us that Joshua has died. He's dead. He's gone. And with him goes the example of following and listening to the voice of God. A new generation rises up, it says, that knew not God nor his ways and did evil in the eyes of God. You see, that often happens even in our culture today. There'll be one generation where someone gives their life to Christ. They're committed, and they try and pass it on to their sons and their daughters. They drag them to church, and that level of commitment is really reduced to complacency. Uh, and then what will happen is the next generation, their sons and daughters will try and bring their children along, and really, they go to the place of compromise. And that's exactly what we see in the Scriptures here. They have compromised. They've turned and forsook God, and they've followed their own sin. And in that moment, God takes a step back, and the surrounding nations take a step in, and they step all over the people of Israel. They enslave them again. And it's in that moment when they realize their failures and their flaws, they cry out for a judge. They say, would somebody save us? And that's where we pick up our passage. Judges chapter 3, verses 12 to 30 say this. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. Getting the Ammonites and the Amalekites to join him, Eglon came and attacked Israel, and they took possession of the city of Palms. 
the Israelites were subject to Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. Again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord, and he gave them a deliverer, Ehud, a left-handed man. Say left-handed man. That's a good Irish accent, Adrian. I like it. The son of Gera, the Benjamite, the Israelites sent him with tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Ehud had made a double-edged sword about a cubit long, which he strapped to his right thigh under his clothing. He presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, who was a very fat man. Say very fat man. After Ehud had presented the tribute, he sent on their way those who had carried it. But on reaching the stone images near Gilgal, he himself went back to Eglon and said, Your Majesty, I have a secret message for you. The king said to his attendants, Leave us, and they all left us. Ehud then approached him while he was sitting alone in the upper room of his palace and said, I have a message from God for you. And the king rose from his seat. Ehud reached with his left hand, drew the sword from his right thigh, and plunged it into the king's belly. Even the handle sank in after the blade and the bowels discharged. Lovely mental image right there. Ehud did not pull the sword out and the fat closed in over it. Then Ehud went out to the porch. He shut the doors of the upper room behind him and locked them. After he had gone, the servants came and found the doors of the upper room locked. They said, he must be relieving himself in the inner room of the palace. They waited to the point of embarrassment, but they did not open the doors of the room. They took the key and unlocked them. There they saw the Lord fall to the floor dead. While they waited, Ehud got away. He passed by the stone images and escaped to Sarai. When he arrived there, he blew a trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites went down with him to the hills, with him leading them. Follow me, he ordered, for the Lord had given Moab, your enemy, into your hands. So they followed him down and took possession of the fords of Jordan that led to Moab. They allowed no one to cross over. At that time, they struck down ten thousand Moabites, all vigorous and strong. Not one escaped. That day Moab was subject to Israel, and the land had peace for 80 years. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it brings life. It's not old or irrelevant, and we should never judge the book by its cover. We pray that today you would bring old truths alive to us afresh. And in the midst of this passage, would you point us to Jesus, we pray. Amen. Here is Israel in quite a predicament. They've fallen back into their old ways. They've fallen into their sin. They're enslaved, and they need a savior. And they cry out to God, send a deliverer. And he sends them Ehud, a left-handed man. Now, put your hand up in the room if you're left-handed. Okay, we've got a few. We will pray for you at the end. That's fantastic. No, you can put it down. This is not personal in any way whatsoever, but there's some wee moments in the Bible and, and wee references that you wonder, why on earth is that there? But let me tell you, every word in the Word of God is there for a reason. And the reason of this phrase, this description of Ehud, is to show us that Ehud is weak. No offense needed or meant to be to those who are left-handed. He's weak. Why? Because we know from the scriptures and from society at that time, to be right-handed was a symbol of strength and ability. And to be left-handed was the opposite. In fact, we don't know how or why he's left-handed, but the scholars suggest that it's not by choice. It was probably because of a deformity or a disability in his right hand. 
he had to be left-handed. And what makes matters worse for Ehud is not just the reputation among people he doesn't know. You know, he would have been the person they walked in the street, they would have laughed and pointed. Maybe he had a shriveled hand, maybe it was deformed, maybe it was disabled, but they would have looked and pointed and said, look, there's a weak man. He's a left-handed man. It would have been a derogatory term. It would have been an insult to him. But to make matters worse, we learn that Ehud comes from the tribe of Benjamin. And now the tribe of Benjamin, if you look at the Hebrew for the word Benjamin, it means son of the right hand. So here's Ehud, not only for those on the outside, but even those on the inside, friends and family, see him as being weak. Not the guy you want to deliver you from your oppressors. Not the guy to release you from King Eglon. If you're crying out amongst the whole nation of Israel, God, would you send someone? Ehud would have been in your bottom three to send. He was a left-handed man. And before we write Ehud off, let's be honest. All of us were born left-handed, so to speak. We were born with a weakness. If I look around the room, there's weaknesses all around. Although it mightn't be written on your forehead, no matter what you've gone through, no matter who you are, where you're from, we all have weaknesses, okay? And if I look around the room right now, there could be people struggling with addiction in the room, people struggling with their mental health, maybe with eating disorders, maybe financially, maybe with secret sin, maybe, just maybe, you're Irish. <laughs> That's a weakness, okay? We all have weaknesses, and what the encouraging thing is we see from the person of Ehud on this passage is that although we mightn't be man's first choice, we're God's. Ehud was God's first choice. That despite who he was or where he came from or what he had done or what he was going through, God was able to work in his weakness. And I want to encourage you this morning, God can work in your weakness. He wants to work in your weakness. He wants to flip the script, so to speak. You see, other people in your life, maybe those in school or in the workplace or in your community or maybe even people in your family, they look at you and they see your weakness. It's glaringly obvious to them. And they'll write the headlines. They'll write the cover of your life, so to speak. But God doesn't look at the headlines. He looks at the heart. And He's been in your life from day one, page one, he knows you. He knows your story. He knows your strengths, and he knows your weaknesses. And he wants to flip the script. He wants to change the narrative from you being a victim of your weakness to being a victor, or a victim of your weakness to being a victor in your weakness. A wee bit like the Apostle Paul. If we look in the Bible in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 9 to 10, we, we see something really remarkable about a man of God Put your hand up if you've heard of the Apostle Paul before. Okay, a few of you, okay. Great, it's great you're in church. Those who don't, it's great you're in church. The Apostle Paul was an amazing man. You should read about him. He read, he, he wrote a lot of the Bible. You should really check him out. It's fantastic. He, he did so many amazing things, yet he had his weaknesses. He, he went to God in prayer like many of you have, like I have, and said, God, would you take this away? Would you take away this weakness from me? What did God reply? We read in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, 9 to 10 says, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. 
Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses. Wow, can you say that? I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I believe this passage this morning that we've looked at in the person of Ehud will be able to see three principles where God wants to work in your weakness. The first one is this. God wants to turn your weakness into worship. We, we looked at the name of Benjamin, how Ehud comes from the tribe of Benjamin and how it means the son of the right hand. What's quite interesting is if you look at the Hebrew for Ehud's name, it means I shall praise. He's stuck in this dilemma, this identity crisis, whether to focus on what he's got or what he's not. He has a choice whether to worship God or to wonder, oh, why don't I have that? See all the other people in my life, they have so many good things. They have a right hand. They can use their right hand. If only I had a right hand. He has a choice to make whether to praise God for what he's got or to give off to God for what he's not. And that scenario in Scripture isn't new. Time and time again, we see it in the Scripture. Again, the Apostle Paul, he's in Acts chapter 16. He's sitting in jail with a guy called Silas, and things aren't looking good for him. There doesn't seem to be any way out. And in that moment, they start singing God's praises. Again, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, before he goes and he's crucified, he knows exactly what is happening. He knows what the future holds for him. Yet, after he has the Last Supper with his disciples, it says, before they went out, they stood up and what? They sung a hymn. In your lowest point, you can give God the highest praise. Ehud chose to do that, not just with his lips, but with his life. He chose to get up and to lift high the name of God again in this nation. We have that same choice, but how do we do it? We do it by embracing our weakness, not by hiding it, not by pretending it doesn't exist. It's by embracing our weakness. And when we embrace our weakness, we see that God wants to turn our weakness into a weapon, not just into worship. God wants to turn our weakness into a weapon. I love that. Or an Ehud situation, a secret weapon, right? Because he embraces his weakness, he's able to get into the king's presence. What do I mean by that? Well, he's going to bring a tribute or a sacrifice to King Eglon, and as he does that, he's thinking, I can get into the presence of the king. So beforehand, he makes a sword, and he straps it to his right thigh. Not his left thigh, his right thigh. And there's something vital about that. He embraces his weakness because in that day and age, if you were a warrior or if you had a sword and you were right-handed, you would strap it to your left thigh. Why? Because it's easier to get out in battle. In fact, Charlotte and I come from an amazing wee town in Northern Ireland called Enniskillen. And we have the most... Oh, I wish I had a photograph of it. It's so nice. It has like this castle, this medieval castle. It was built in 1428. It's old school. And if you ever do a tour of it, you'll see that it has one of them stone stairwells, you know, like many of them documentaries and movies have. One thing you'll notice about them stairwells is it favors those who are defending the castle and not those who are attacking it. Why? Because there's this wall. Like, it's, it's such a tight turn in the wall. You're always going, like, clockwise 
trying to get up. You can never attack with your right hand. You can only do it if you're left-handed. On the other hand, if you are defending the castle, you're always turning to your left, so you can easily, like, attack them. You can do that. And the same mindset was taking place when it happened here, because they were strapped to their, their left thigh, easy access, ready to fight, not fumbling around on their right side. So when they went into the king's presence, anyone going in would have been checked on their left thigh. But because Ehud strapped it to his right thigh, he would have went undetected. Wouldn't have been checked at all. In fact, maybe because of his deformity in the right hand, they mightn't even have bothered checking him. They thought, he, he poses no danger to the king. But it's in that moment when you embrace your weakness that God can turn your weakness into a weapon. Because here he is in the room with the king. And he says something to the king. He goes, I have a message from God for you. Now, just a quick side note. If anyone ever says to you, I have a message from God for you, just run away, right? They want to kill you. They've got a sword in it. Don't, don't, you know. I'm joking, I'm joking, because we are Pentecostals. We believe in giving people words, but no word from God will ever be out of line from the word of God. That's me clearing my back there. Okay, cool. He gets into the presence of the king. And the king's intrigued. He doesn't see him as a threat. And he tells all the servants to leave. Okay. He invites him up into the upper chambers, which seem to be some sort of bathroom up there, from what we read later in the passage. Another side point, never lock yourself in the bathroom with an assassin. Whatever you do, folks, don't, that's a bad idea. It's going to end badly for you. But it's in that moment where Ehud, or Eglon rises from his seat that Ehud grabs, uses his left hand, gets the thor- sword from his right thigh, and he stabs King Eglon. And it's so graphic what happens next. The, the sword goes into his stomach, and he's that big and that fat that it continues to go in and doesn't come out. What's really interesting, actually, is not just the graphic aspect of this text, but if you look at the Hebrew, it describes King Eglon as meaty. We see the word fat man, very fat man, but the Hebrew, it describes it like, translates it as being very meaty. Like, that's not, that's not a good phrase to use either. Another side point, if your wife comes to you in a new dress and says, how do I look? Don't say meaty, right? Whatever you do, don't say meaty. But it's interesting because this phrase is never really used when it comes to human beings. It's only used in the Scriptures when it comes to animals, and animals that are about to be sacrificed. What's really interesting on top of that is the meaning in Hebrew of King Eglon's name. Eglon means calf. So in this moment, as Ehud sticks the sword into Eglon, he's actually sacrificing what seems to be a fattened calf. God uses his weakness as a weapon against the devil, against the enemy. And I want you to know that because all of us have weaknesses. And what the enemy would want to whisper in your ear is that it's actually doing you damage. It's doing the kingdom of God damage. You could never be used by God. But the truth is God wants to flip the script. He wants to use your weakness as a weapon against the enemy. And when he does that, and in that moment when you embrace your weakness, God turns it not only into worship, into a weapon, but finally we see from this passage, God wants to turn your weakness into a way out for others. What happens next is quite comical. 
Ehud goes down, he locks the, the upper chamber doors, and he runs off while the servants are just waiting there. They're, they walk into the room and they, they smell the smell. And they're thinking, what did King Eglon have for dinner today? Because that's pretty bad. In fact, it goes on to say they waited until, until they were embarrassed. And they decide, right, we better see if he needs a hand. And they go and they unlock the door and he falls out before them dead. But by that stage, Ehud has got away. He's run to the hill country. And he goes out and he starts to proclaim. We see in verse 28, follow me, he ordered, for the Lord has given Moab your enemy into your hands. So they followed him down and took possession of the fords of Jordan that led to Moab. They allowed no one to cross over. I want you to see this. When God brings victory in your life, it's not just for you, it's for others. He provides a way out for others. He runs to the hill country. He doesn't run off and celebrate, look at me, look at me. He says, follow me. Why? Because the Lord has given into your hand Moab. God brings victory in your life and turns your weakness into worship and into a weapon so that it'll be a way out for others as well. Whatever you're going through, if it's anxiety, God wants to bring victory in your life so that you can see victory in the lives of others. Follow me, just as Paul writes in the New Testament, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Our example is to encourage other people to encounter God for themselves. And he is doing this. He says, follow me. God has given it into your hands. I love that. Of all the phrases he could have used, into your hands. He's going to give you victory at the place and the point of your weakness. Not of anything because of anything Ehud's done, but because God fights for you. Now, I wish I could just say there's a happily ever after ending here. But if you read the book of Judges for yourself, you'll see things start to spiral out of control. That although in this story, Ehud seems to bring deliverance to the nation and peace on the, in the land for 80 whole years, things went downhill again. The people start to sin. The people need, are enslaved and they need another deliverer. And it's at this point, I want to say, when it comes to the book of Judges and the Bible, you should never judge a book by its cover. Because this passage and the person of Ehud show us that this isn't really all about principles. This passage isn't about three helpful principles, although I know they are and they will help you as you fight and walk the Christian life, as God turns weakness into worship, into a weapon and into a way out for others. I know they will bless you, but this passage isn't primarily about principles. The Israelites didn't need three steps to freedom. They didn't need more principles. It's about a person. They needed another deliverer, someone greater than Ehud, someone greater than you and greater than me. You see, this passage isn't about principles, but it points to the person of Jesus Christ, our ultimate judge, the greatest judge that we have ever had. You see, sometimes as Christians, we can be very good at putting ourselves in the story. You know, we can just go, which book of the Bible am I going to be the hero of today in my quiet time and put my finger there and say, it's all about me. But the truth is, when we look at this passage, we're not the heroes. We're probably the people that couldn't free ourselves, that Ehud had to come and set us free. We need a deliverer. And this passage isn't ultimately about Ehud because the whole story shows us they need more than just Ehud. This passage is about Jesus, our 
unlikely judge. He's our Ehud. He's our left-handed deliverer. Why do I say that? Well, Isaiah 53 verse 2 says, when Jesus came, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. In fact, if you would ask many religious people in the days of Jesus, they would have said he was unwanted and a waste of space. They weren't, he wasn't the deliverer that they wanted. He wasn't the political leader, warrior style judge that they were desiring. Yet, it was in his moment of weakness on the cross that God turned his weakness into worship, into a weapon against the enemy, and into a way out for others. It's the ultimate example of God flipping the script. Jesus wasn't a victim of his weakness. He was a victor in his weakness. He's the one that was able to defeat the enemy that you and I couldn't, setting us free from the curse and the consequences of sin. Jesus is the one who sets us free. And maybe you're here this morning and you're realizing that for the first time. I want to speak directly to you now for a moment because what I love about this passage is that this Old Testament passage has a New Testament parallel. And for those Bible geeks in the room like me, you'll love this. If you flip in the scriptures to Mark chapter 3, you'll see a story about a man with a shriveled hand. It says this in verse 1 of Mark 3. Another time Jesus went into the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Does that sound familiar? A man who may have been left-handed, so to speak, because of a deformity or a disability to his hand. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil or to save a life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. I think that passage is so interesting and a great parallel here because this man walks into the temple, a place of worship, and it's more than likely, we're not sure if it's for the first time or for the hundredth time, but in that culture, if you went to the temple, you probably had a lifestyle or a ritual of going there. But if he's, say he goes time and time again, maybe he goes hiding his hand or hiding his weakness, not wanting to show it to anyone else. You see, if you come into the place of worship and people say, hide your weakness, you've come into a religious place. Religious people tell you to hide your weaknesses from God. But what does Jesus do? He doesn't judge a book by its cover. He doesn't think, okay, everyone in here, you must be in a, a place of worship. You must be doing really, really good. He sees you, and he calls out your weakness, never to shame you, always to shape you. And he calls out this man's weakness, and he says, look, I will trade you your weakness for my wholeness. I will give you healing if you stretch out your hand. And I wonder in this place, if there's anyone with that weakness of sin, that thing that we were all born with, the thing that separates us from God, not only in this life, but in the next. You see, Ehud was able to free his people for 80 years in the land, but Jesus didn't come just to set you free on earth, but for all eternity. 
And he turns to this man, he says, stretch out your hand. And the moment he stretches out his hand, he's healed and whole only by a touch from Jesus. Right now, just in a moment, I'm going to offer people in this place, maybe you're here and you need that healing and wholeness. You need to turn from your sin and you need to put your trust in Jesus as Savior. You say, I want to follow you. I want to know you. I want to have this relationship with you. I'm going to give you a moment in just one wee second. But before you do, I want you to know this, that you are only able to stretch out your hand to Jesus because he stretched out his hand on the cross for you. That he went to Calvary to die in your place for your sin, to take the wrath of God, the punishment and the price that you and I deserved so that we could go free that we as captives could be set free, not only here with abundant life, but for all eternity with Christ. And if that's you in this place, I'm just going to ask that everyone would bow their heads and close their eyes just as a, a moment and a mark of respect for those in this place. If that's you, and you want to make that decision to follow Jesus, would you just do something really bold, just like the man in this passage, would you stretch out your hand, just as an indication, an outward indication of an inward desire to follow Jesus? So right now, wherever you are, would you just raise your hand, stretch out your hand. I would love to pray with you. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. You can take your hand back down if you've stretched it up. Is there anyone else this morning that wants to indicate, saying, I want to follow Jesus. I want to give you my life, God. I want to turn from my sin. I want to put my trust in you as Savior. Fantastic. Okay, we're going to pray now in a moment. Thank you. See that hand. And as I pray, I want to invite you, if you've raised your hand, if you've stretched out your hand, would you pray this with me? Just as a, a prayer in response to God's kindness and his grace to you, that you would talk to him, accept him for who he is and what he's done in your life. So let's pray together. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for sending your son to the cross for my sin. I thank you that he has forgiven me that he has set me free and I ask that you would fill me with your Holy Spirit. I turn from my sin now and put my trust in you as Savior. Would you change me inside out, upside down for the honor and the glory of your name, I pray. Amen. Amen, church. Let's give those people a big round of applause and encourage them for making that decision. Thank you for listening to this Elam Christian Center podcast. Please subscribe to keep hearing more life-changing messages. For more information about our church, please visit www.elamchristiancenter.org.nz.